Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hatch Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. But more importantly, we're very good friends. Isn't that true, Ben? On a scale of relative importance, I would put that near the top. That that says big things, honestly. That says really big things. In fact, we're such good friends that I let Ben plug whatever publication that he's recently written for at this point in time in the podcast, without any limitations. Okay, Ben, here you go. Uh, you and know, I, don't you forget know, to mention all of the only the the approved list of publications that I gave you. Yeah, you know, I struggle when there's no boundaries. Um, you can find my work at Haggerty, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at driving.ca, autotrader.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and um, I was in actually my my. My article in Car and Driver should be online sometime soon or should be there now. It's so making Car and Driver, tra- I guess. Making the transition from the newsstand to the internet. It's growing up. It's kind of like a, it's a coming of age of an article when it when it transitions from print to digital like that. And, you know, you do your best, but you just have to ultimately put it out there in the world and see what happens. Oh, this is hitting home too. This is hitting too home. Cats too close to home. The cradle in the silver spoon. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Why didn't I spend more time with the article? <laughs> well, thankfully, you have a second chance. You have a son now, so this, you can. It's like basically a big do-over. You can fix all of those. You know, in all those nights you worked late uh, and stayed away from the article, this is your opportunity to um, be yeah, better, be a better human being. Yeah, hopefully. I I thought I was pretty bad before, but. Now I've got a, you're right, I've got a second chance. Speaking of bad, um, (laughs) this weekend I attempted to, uh, this is unrelated to anything automotive, but I attempted to fix the, my, my computer had a fan that was really loud. It's a newish computer and the fan was bothering me. And I've been complaining about it to Sammy for like three months conservatively. And so I finally bought a quiet uh, cooler and I went to put it on and long story short, I had to remove the processor. And when I put it back, I bent the pins on my motherboard and literally lunched a, lo- a motherboard that was three months old and i felt really stupid and it was like 24 hours of chaos where i had to i had to get another motherboard and the only one available in my area that was comparative comparable in terms of features was like it was called the live mixer and uh it looked like somebody shook up a can of spray paint and then just exploded inside my computer. It's like yellow and orange and white. And it's I guess it's meant to be graffiti. And I guess it's meant to, if you're really into gaming, maybe you would like this. But I kept sending pictures of it to Sammy and he eventually forced me to stop because he hated looking at it. It was awful. It is eye bleach, really. Honestly, it is, it's rough. I can't recommend this this device, but on, it was the only you know, in any port in a motherboard storm, apparently. So we're recording now. We had some issues today we're trying to get this set up to get the new motherboard to recognize devices and have everything work properly. So hopefully there are no issues on this on this recording. Um, I love the fact that it is the live mixer. I want to know what you would describe the automotive equivalent to the live mixer. Oh, any Scion <laughs> release series, I think, would be, that's what I would go for. Remember, I, for those who don't remember, Scion used to make uh, limited edition release series like 1.0 and 2.0 versions of their cars. And a lot of the time, 
some of them were cool, but some of them were to just help drum up interest in their in their flailing brand. Yeah, youth oriented brand. And you would get wild colors and lots of visual stuff, but no real performance differences yes. most of the time. You could get high performance stuff from Scion, but it was never through the release series. So that's kind of I think what I would go with, or maybe the Gucci version of the Smart Four Two, or was it the Fiat? Uh, 500. I think it was a Fiat. The Fiat, Fiat 500. There was yeah. a Brabus version of the Smart 4, too. Yeah, but that kind of looks cool. <laughs> kind of. I dig it. Um, okay, that's a good That's a good way to start our, our, our week of podcasting up. Um, because we've got some cars to talk about this week that have that have dwelled on our brains, really. They've, they've sat there in our, in our gray matter, and we need to talk about them. You should go first because I know you have needs. I do, I do have needs. I need to talk to you about the 2024 Volvo XC40 Recharge. Now you would like you would you would like to point out that I didn't say anything after the term recharge because sometimes it's called something else. It's called the Recharge Twin. This is not the Recharge Twin. And there's also the, what the C40 Recharge, which is the same thing, yes. but 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 less convenient. <laughs> yes, different profile, and I think more expensive. Yeah. The Volvo XC40 um, Recharge is now available in two different drive configurations. Before, it used to be all-wheel drive only. Which... Twin described the uh, use of two motors. Okay. And now you can remove the Twin, uh, surgically, I suppose, and it is just the <laughs> like a Volvo XC40 movie. <laughs> Recharge. Um, and more interestingly than that... Um, it's important to point out that the XC40 shares its platform, like you mentioned, with the Volvo C40, as well as, as far as I understand, the Polestar 2, which used to be offered as all-wheel drive or front-wheel drive. But Volvo's approach to removing one of the axles of power um, well done. Is, to, is to send power to the rear wheels, which me and Ben both agree is a good idea. And and to be honest, in an electric car, there's no reason to build front-wheel drive. So the only reason... Unless you're, re- you're recycling a front-wheel drive platform. No, but even if you are recycling a front-wheel drive platform, there's no there's no drive shaft for an, an electric car um, when you're... In a traditional sense, like you don't have to have a drive shaft to turn the rear wheels. You just have to send power to motors that are at the back of the vehicle, right? Instead right. of... Because you don't have to translate uh, an, the up-down motion of the pistons into a r- rotating motion for a drive shaft, you, you're you, you're essentially free of any kind of um, requirement to a, a, as to packaging. And this is important because the only reason we have front-wheel drive cars is because they are so much easier to package and they are so much cheaper to build most of the time. Unless you have a really complicated transaxle, but you can just put a a motor on top of a transaxle and it's all one unit and it fits into a small space and you can manufacture that in an economical way. For electric cars, they're even cheaper to build because there are so few moving components. There's no compelling reason to offer front-wheel drive. And I want to kind of point out there's one model of vehicle that GM was building or was yes. slated to build in the and and it when it was originally supposed to come out I believe we're talking about the Blazer EV Sammy so, yeah okay yeah. so the Blazer EV was going to be offered as front wheel drive rear wheel drive and all wheel drive you could order any of those configurations that is madness that is absolute madness because there's no benefit 
to a front-wheel drive EV versus a rear-wheel drive EV in any meaningful way. In fact, it will drive worse dynamically. Um, and especially given how weight is distributed in an EV, you don't even get that old argument, well, there's going to be more weight on the front wheels, so it should be better in, in, in snow and, and low traction conditions. That is not the case. So GM... I and electric motors are technically smaller, so they should be able to fit in um, anywhere. wherever you need them. Anywhere, exactly. Uh, so... Long story short, GM decided not to do that, and they were <laughs> they were really quiet about it too. It just they just announced that the Blazer would no longer be available in a front wheel drive form. So, um, it's so it's funny. It's odd. It's. I think that was. I mean, I think they were using it as an example of how um, modular or versatile the the Altium platform was. And everyone knows that if you really wanted to show how modular or versatile something is, you come up with a new arbitrary, completely unnecessary um, design. <laughs> a configuration no one wants to order. It's like... That is dynamically worse in every way. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of thing you would do for like a concept and then people yeah. would say, oh, that's neat and then never talk about it again. So you, when you're building... And GM kept talking about it. Yeah, they, they wouldn't stop. It's it's like having a, having a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend in Canada. It was like they were always talking about it but no one ever met them right like True. but it was wise i think to build a car people actually want um that is a a concept that has eluded gm at times although they're much better about it now but anyway yeah so sammy having driven the all-wheel drive version as i have i haven't driven the rear-wheel drive one what are your impressions like is this something people should get if they don't need all-wheel drive because most people don't yeah I, I honestly there's a lot of really interesting changes when you when you make this change from all-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive, in the U.S., it also gets a slightly different battery, a 79-kilowatt-hour battery rather than a 75-kilowatt-hour battery. And that battery also charges a tiny bit quicker at 200 kilowatts rather than 150. That's, now, that's more than a tiny bit. That's a lot. That's 25% it's like a quarter. faster. Yeah, 25% faster. It's pretty decent. <laughs> yeah. So there is some speculation that um, the, the all-wheel drive model will get that other um, battery as well and hopefully that's the case but currently um the the rear-wheel drive version of the car gets 293 miles of range which is a big upgrade from the old um 223 for the all-wheel drive one and the new 254 for the updated version of this of this all-wheel drive version so you're saying wait wait a minute you're saying there's an updated all-wheel drive with the bigger battery as well no, no, it's they're just a bit more efficient as far as I understand. It's a different, um, I believe it's a different motor. Okay, so the all-wheel drive and the rear-wheel drive have different batteries and different charging. And different motors, yeah. Okay. Okay, so before the, the vehicle used to make, I mean, I think it still makes the same amount of horsepower, but uh, apparently the, the motors that Volvo used at the front and rear have changed um, and is more efficient now. This is why, like, I, I got to stop you here. Yeah. You know, if we were talking about a gas vehicle <laughs> yeah, this and they were like, not, okay, not get this. It's a different <laughs> engine, but it's the same power as when we had two engines. <laughs> we would be like, wait, wait what? <laughs> no, no, sorry. I'm, I'm not being, maybe I'm not being clear. The old model was only available in all wheel drive. Okay. Yes. And I believe it used these two, these two motors. Okay. Okay. The new all-wheel drive version uses different two different motors that put out the same amount of power but are more efficient in terms of their configuration. The rear-wheel drive model doesn't use a motor from that setup. It uses a I think 255 horsepower motor. Okay. 
Um, that makes more sense to me. But I, it just, it's interesting how when you have an EV, they can just make these updates, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's almost like software. In a sense, yes. it's okay. Well, you know, last year we weren't happy with this motor, so now here's two totally different motors that are eh, <laughs> roughly the same, but different. They're very different. When you, and more affordable for us. So <laughs> when you're we buying, the benefit. imagine buying a used EV like ten years from now. You're going to have to go back every model year is going to have some weird gutcha. And I'm not, I'm not saying they'll be more or less reliable because they're different, but it, it's just going to be odd to like. The idea of parts commonality switching so differently between one model year and the next is something I'm not used to when it comes to gas cars. But this makes me think of um, used car buyers looking at products that were built during the COVID era and the chip shortage. Yeah. And vehicles just suddenly not having parts they're supposed to have. It's or... still happening now. Like, if you <laughs> is go, it still? If you go to – so during my recent search for a new vehicle to lease – um, a lot of the builds that I would make, it would always say something like, okay, there's a shortage, some features might not be available, there could be delays, blah, blah, blah. Like They still have those warnings up um, when you're configuring a vehicle. I'm not sure of what is missing. I think that like for BMW, I think they were still having trouble with um, some, some, some chips involving the infotainment display. Uh, it's very, very specific. I, I, for GM, I think it was weird stuff like climate-controlled seats and, and things like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's all dependent on who their suppliers were. Uh, I recall Tesla used to not have like they ran out of USB ports and they just had a hole in in there that you're. Can I install my own USB through? port? <laughs> yeah, no, Ben. I'm worried that you'll bend some pins. That's the problem. I probably and will. Just, and just brick your whole Tesla. Oh, um, sorry, I'm, I know that hurt. That cuts too deep. I'm sorry. Then I have to have like a bright yellow and orange spray painted <laughs> graffiti <laughs> dashboard. They're like, this is your punishment. This is the only one we had. Release series. <laughs> Release series suck. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, as I mentioned, it gains a significant amount of range, especially compared to the all wheel drive only version of the vehicle, yeah, which came crazy. out last year 293 miles is actually fairly competitive very um and i i received a pretty good like all all throughout my drive i felt like that was pretty consistent i i felt like i was getting close to that um that mileage and i was pretty satisfied with the performance i didn't think that it was neutered in any any particular way the all-wheel drive version is like is humorously fast. Like it is really a silly fast car given the size and, and proportions of the XC40. It shouldn't be that fast. And how fast are we talking? Do you have numbers? The XC40, I think is like a four second zero to 60. Hey, that's ridiculous. It's silly. Like it's, it's a weird car. Um, but I don't think it matched the personality for it to be that fast. So this rear wheel drive model is fine. It works totally fine as a subcompact, um, crossover. And I do think that they've improved the ride and handling significantly, not to make it more agile or like sporty, but to be significantly more compliant. Because one of the complaints I had with the old model was that it felt heavy. It felt stiff and heavy. And that meant that every bump or pothole or a crack in the road, you would really kind of like feel it. And it just didn't feel kind of refined. It felt... Like it thumped hard on stuff. My, and, my big complaint about the XC40 was the lack of a, a heat pump for the battery. Okay. And I remember in the winter, I saw like a 40% reduction in range on the first one I drove. Now, I want to say that they fixed that. I do believe they have fixed that, but I can't find exactly that uh, that note in my 
in my uh, in my facts here. Okay. But I do think that they have fixed that. Um, the other thing that I've complained about a number of times in the XC40 is the software in the car, the in-car experience can be kind of um, infuri infuriating, mainly because you have to use Google Android Automotive OS. Oof. I tried to approach this with an open mind um, and was quickly, uh, like, I don't know how quickly I became angry. No, every time it just slaps you down. It's like you, you try to do something basic with that OS and there's something weird that pops up where you have to sign into something or it just gets yep. really, really slow. And yep. it is not a good implementation of this technology. I wish Volvo would move away from it. I also had bugs, believe it or not. Not like uh, like creepy crawlies, but software glitches. It very frequently did like decided that the the digital gauge cluster that displayed a map didn't do that anymore it did not want to show me a map in any way or form um and it would only do it after like a re, uh, an on off cycle like then suddenly i get it again that is super annoying um, um and and then additionally sorry to cut you off that's okay um it kept asking me to like sign in accept new sort of like uh terms and conditions and every time i would need to do this it would like take over the screen when i really just wanted to um get this you're gonna love this Every time you plug in the car, it locks the cable, and you have to. And no matter how many times I press the unlock button, it didn't unlock the cable. So I was really annoyed by that. Uh, you have to go into the car and press an unlock cable, like on an infotainment screen. That is ridiculous. That is not like present. Like, okay. It's not. You have to go through a couple of settings to find it. And of course, like I said, the moment you get in the car, you have to go to. You have to tell it, I don't want to deal with this terms and conditions. I don't want to deal with a software update at this time. I just want to unlock the cable and get going. The first thing and you do. It's really annoying. It's super annoying because you do not get in a car before you unplug it from the wall. Exactly. That is the exact opposite of the order of how you do things. That it's you. You walk up to a car, you unplug it, you put the plug away, you get in the car, you drive off. It's the natural order of operations. I mean, um, the other question I had for you. Uh, oof, where 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 was I going with this? I know oh, that. Sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. I remembered. On the original XC40 recharge, there was no range display. It yep. just told you battery percentage. I think. Right? Yes. Is it still like yep. that? It does have a range display, and it also has something called. Um, is it on the gauge cluster? It is on the gauge okay, cluster. Okay, so that's it's nice. called it. Now in in Canada, it only it only changes in increments of ten up to a certain point. Okay. Is that weird to so you? Because it, it was weird to me. Like, is that no? So it was like four hundred or like four fifty, and then it'd be like four forty, four thirty, four twenty. You know, like that's in kilometers. Yes. Okay. Yes, in kilometers. And I was like, well, I'm I'm sure I've got more than four twenty, but less than four thirty. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how are weird? you supposed to plan that four hundred twenty six kilometer road trip? That's that's difficult. <laughs> I thought that was very very interesting. Um, Otherwise, I will point out now that um, now that I have my own little like family and I have to haul like baby gear around, these vehicles are not the size they're supposed to, they they advertise to be. What does that mean? It's like bait Once and switch. Once I put a baby seat in the in the back seat of the vehicle, a rear facing baby seat in the back seat of a Volvo XC40, my front passenger's chair was so far forward that they were their knees were basically 
touching the dash. Yeah, but to be fair, you bought the Cadillac of baby seats. Like this is like a, what a giant baby seat. I'm assuming it is the lightest baby seat I could find. Uh, yeah, because... yeah, because it's carbon fiber, not because of the size. Yeah, because I haven't been working out consistently since I don't know, like COVID. So I was worried that I wouldn't be able to lift my child out of a car. I seat. assume that you bought a baby seat for the baby to grow into, right? So it's not like a tiny, tiny baby seat for a tiny baby. Yeah, it's like a yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be flipped around later, and okay. then that's apparently as far as it goes. But in, in addition to that. The trunk space. I also have um, a stroller, and once I put that stroller in the back seat, it's like, well, if you get groceries, this is it's like a one day kind of grocery trip, you know, rather than a week long grocery trip. That's and you know how much I love stacking um, my my grocery days. I know you can't. I mean, I thought you were getting it all delivered, but it does it does <laughs> seem like true. a hassle. <laughs> that is true. But I had a car, so I was like, let's go and uh, let's go and fill this thing with groceries. Oh no, my kids. Can you uh, can you slide the rear seat back? Does it does nope. it do that? Okay. No, you cannot. Any other questions? Um, can you put the baby seat in the back on a, like a special jump seat apparatus? I would love that. It would be pretty no. cool. And I think I also think the the child protection services would be like, no, you have to be with your body. They'd you have, have to, to catch you though. And this Volvo is pretty fast. <laughs> Not the three wheel drive one, as I mentioned. Um, so you know the 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 vehicle is supposedly a little bit uh, more affordable. I'm having difficulty finding. Vo- um, What's it called? 2024 pricing for this. Every time I go and check it out on the internet, they want me to buy a 2023, and I'm not. I'm not down for that. I want to say they're around 70 in Canada. They are so expensive they're in Canada. Very man. expensive here. I I was looking at them because uh, Volvo advertised. So, so in Quebec, there's huge. Um, I guess you would call them incentives to buy electric vehicles, probably better mm-hmm. than anywhere else in North America. I think it's in like $15,000 off the sticker price. And it's not done on taxes. Like it's not on an income tax credit like it is in the US. It's an actual credit that is immediately applied to the price. So if you lease it, it comes off the lease that the the, the uh, dealership gets it. But if you um, if you buy it, it's just essentially sliced off the your, your monthly payments. And because of this, many, many people in Quebec buy EVs and there's not enough EVs in the Quebec market to meet demand because, again, we're a small market. It's like 8 million people who live here. And most of those EVs are going to the U.S. at this time. But Volvo, so this has created waiting lists. Volvo has mm-hmm. been advertising the XC40 as you can get it right, right away. And mm-hmm. and then when I looked at their pricing, I immediately understood why. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, oh, I, I kind of like this vehicle. And I mean, I like the gas one more than I like the recharge. But the recharge is good. But um, I like I said, I, the last time I drove it was the older model. But th- I'm not going to pay $70,000 for this vehicle. No, piece. it's absolutely it's, way too much. Even in adjusted dollars, that would be something like 56 US, I think. Which yeah, still so feels high for this vehicle. The 2023 all-wheel drive model was fifty, just about $55,000, including destination. I'm expecting the rear-wheel drive one to be cheaper, but honestly, um, Volvo might really be pushing a more, a more expensive product. I don't know. Um, I, I just don't get it. They, I think that that car is too expensive to begin with, um, and rear-wheel drive model should be more affordable, yeah. but it still has the same, if not a bigger battery, and... I don't know. And, you know, you know realistically, are people cross-shopping the XC40 Recharge against, like, an e-tron? Or are they cross-shopping it against a Kia or, or a Hyundai? Like, you like the Ionic? Yeah. Like, it's tough well, to know. Are, those are way more affordable, I think. They are. And that's what I'm saying. Like, Volvo has positioned this vehicle to be Audi-priced. Yeah. And I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure the return is there. No, know? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think the experience is quite there. 
Um, I mean, the interior is beautiful and and, yeah. and nice, but infotainment system is is not great. Size is not perfect, um, and those are main sticking factors that you have to live with over time. And I don't think that um, I don't think the Volvo XC40 has that over, like you said, an Audi or BMW. I do think it looks very cool. I agree with you, and I like the design in general. But I'm not. I'm not I I would hesitate to buy that above other EVs that I even a Mach E. Which is can get very very expensive, yeah. But I feel like maybe a mid trim Mach E is a better choice for practicality's sake. Yeah, I think one hundred percent. And I think the X the Mach E is surprisingly spacious. Oh, for sure, definitely larger than an XC forty, at least as I remember it. So I mean, all of this is is to say that please Volvo make your cars more affordable and uh, do something about that infotainment I mean, system or or in car interface. I mean. It's okay for Volvo to position itself as a luxury brand, but if they're going to do that, they need to fully double down and make it worth the money in comparison to other existing luxury products. Like, I'm not saying Volvos don't feel a little bit of cut above some of their rivals, but I, I think the position in the market is unclear. Like, when I buy a Volvo EV, I'm not sure whether, I'm not sure who else I should have cross shopped, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. So, I agree. I agree. I have no idea what, you know, the hit, the, the, are they better than some of the established luxury products overall? I don't think so. But in some ways, definitely. Like I mentioned, the design, definitely. And I actually think the seat and comfort level of the, of the, of the cabin is really strong. I don't think they can, they can get beat on seat comfort. I feel like, you know what I mean? You know, I feel like the gas XC40 compares well against like an Acura RDX or a Lexus NX, you know, like that's, it's it's definitely in that tier or above that tier, um, but like an XC40 yes. versus an X3, I think that's a harder sell. Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, but that's what I had to say about this. It's a, it doesn't look like it's made a significant change because design wise, still the adorable XC40 we know. But um, yeah, there's some big changes underneath the hood, and if you like, um, if you like the longer range to go with the with the XC40, then yes, this will do that. But it comes at a cost, and um, the infotainment system, you've got to be prepared for, to uh, to deal with some hiccups now and then. Okay, so I drove a vehicle, Sammy, that is also kind of at a weird crossroads when it comes to the value that it presents. And that's the 2023 Honda Passport. Uh, I, I was originally planning to drive a Passport a Trail Sport, which is a hard thing to say very quickly. But I ended up driving something called the Elite uh, which is sold as the Touring in Canada. It's the top trim level of the Passport. But basically, Sammy, you've driven the Passport before. I hadn't. We're not going to dwell on it too mm -hmm. much. Passport mm -hmm. is a two-row version of the Pilot, basically. Essentially, basically. But, yeah. but right now, the Pilot is on a new platform. The Passport is on the previous platform that used to be shared with the Pilot. And that pilot, that platform is shared with the Ridgeline. So you kind of have like Ridgeline and Passport are still trucking along with the original platform, Pilot has gone into the future with the new one. It has like a 10-speed automatic versus a 9-speed, um, all sorts of stuff like that. But uh, the, the, the vehicle that I drove, um, there's another vehicle just below it called the, called the Trailsport. It's, it's priced like, if you look at the way it's priced in the U.S., a base passport is like forty two five. Then there's the Trailsport right. for forty five grand, and then there's the Elite, which is forty eight. Right. So there's a fifty five hundred dollars spread between them, and like the Trailsport is like right in the middle. But the funny right. thing about the Passport Trailsport is it brings nothing to the table, 
in terms of upgrades other than like looks and tires that also look like they're capable off-road, but they're really just all-season tires. This is a rugged cosplaying version of the of the what did we used to call it like that, right? Or cosplay off-road? Yeah, it's it's like it's like faux soft-roading. This is like you know Subaru's Wilderness. They really went in on it. They they're like, okay, we're gonna actually upgrade these vehicles. Kia's X Pro. They did the same thing. Uh, Toyota did the same thing with a TRD version of the Rav Four. But when Honda got to got to Trail Sport. They went all in on the Pilot, which has a whole bunch of upgrades on the new platform. But the mm-hmm. Passport, the Trail Sport, is mechanically identical to the um, standard version. Like, there's no difference. You don't get any all-wheel drive differences. You don't get any lift kit. You don't get anything like that. You don't even get, like, a different differential underneath it. So, I, I was kind of looking at this vehicle, like, if you wanted to get a Trail Sport, it makes way more sense to buy the base EXL version of the Passport, which is really well-equipped. And then mm-hmm. you know, buy better tires, off-road tires. You can get a lift kit from a company called J-Sport that will give you, I think it's like one and a half to two inches, depending on uh, what you decide and uh, what axle you're looking at. And you can even get like, um, cool. the other thing you need to consider is that all versions of the Passport come with 20-inch rims except the Trail Sport. But Yeah, which are 18s? Yeah, they're 18s. You can get 18-inch rims from Honda HPD that will fit this vehicle. And then you're set to to buy a wide range of, of all-terrain tires. You can buy... Twi- real, real all-terrain Real tires. all-terrain tires. You can buy 20-inch all-terrain tires if you want, but you're probably risking some wheel damage there, so it's better to go to the 18s just to have more sidewall. Because, again, without a lift kit, you're limited as to how much sidewall you can actually put on a 20-inch rim. Um, okay. So there's that, that was kind of my impression of the car. And the weird thing is, Sammy, we were talking about this before the podcast... Honda has been going to SEMA for like two or three years in a row with something called the Trail Sport Rugged Roads. And they've made like right. 1.0 and 2.0 versions of this vehicle. And it has a lot of the gear I was just talking about. Like it has like actual skid plates and um, it has the J-Sport lift kit and it has a whole bunch of overlanding accessories. But they haven't brought that to market. When they actually brought the Trail Sport out last year, they were just like, eh, it's, a, it's an appearance package, you know? So I thought that was really strange. Like if you look at, how Kia has done it with X-Pro and X-Line. The X-Line looks like the off-road version, but the X-Pro actually right. gives you the off-road gear. But with right. Trail Sport, it's the same name, and you have one vehicle that gives you the off-road gear and another vehicle that doesn't at all. Like, that's confusing to me. Um, And if you go to, like, the RAV4 line of things, I think they have an adventure version of their car yes. and then a TRD version of their car, yes. which, again, I think one is kind of like the graphics package and one is the, like... Equipped with all-terrain There are a lot stuff. of versions of the RAV4. There are way too many so, versions of so, RAV4. Uh, to their credit, Honda doesn't really do trim levels. They they keep it very, very close to the chest. I think like the, you'll, you'll get like four trim levels max per vehicle, usually. Um, whereas Toyota is just like, here's like a dozen trim levels. Good luck. Uh, and that's... Yeah. I, I don't know if they do that instead of having options packages, if that's what they... You know, that's how they prefer it. But getting back to the vehicle I actually did drive... Yeah, the passport, you know, eight point one inches of ground clearance all around, which is less than a wilderness, less than any Subaru, to be honest. Um, but the vehicle is reasonably sized; you can fit a goodly amount of stuff in the back. There is something goodly amount. Yeah, no. it's got a three and a half liter V six. Uh, what I didn't like about the vehicle was the infotainment system is okay, but isn't it tiny? It's tiny, but the screen in front of the driver was more of a problem. Oh yeah, it looks. It looks like it shouldn't be there. 
It looks like it shouldn't be there. It has like it, it could be anything else, right? It, it's really hard to interface with. There's like these <laughs> buttons on the steering wheel that kind of look like they're supposed to access menus on the gauge cluster, but you have to be really careful the context you're using them in because mm-hmm. um it'll alternately affect what you're looking at on the gauge cluster or what is already on the infotainment screen. So you're trying to move up and down a menu and you're, you're changing your music. And it's like very hard to tell what, which one of those things is going to happen. <laughs> this is too bad because in my opinion, you know, if you've been in a new civic an accord or a pilot, they have really good gauge clusters and really good infotainment uh, interfaces. They do have a lot of buttons on the steering wheel. I'll be clear about that. But, um, it's a shame that this passport is just like, eh, just give them this little rectangular screen it's, and maybe it'll it'll show use. some information. The other thing that was uh, difficult to use with that screen was um, I had Waze running on navigation. And when I was trying to go through menus to like make changes on the gauge cluster, it would constantly wipe out the menu I was I was looking at to show me the next turn instruction for, right. for Waze. Not a feature I asked for, but the thing is, if you're looking at a menu, it should show you the menu until you're no longer looking at the menu. And also, yeah. I should be able to not look at directions if I don't want to see them. But this is not an option. Like, I didn't ask to see those. <laughs> it just puts them on the screen because how you navigate that screen is really weird. <laughs> it's, like, opaque completely. Yeah. Like, uh, You figure it out. That was right. a confusing experience. Um, Otherwise, the elite version of this vehicle, top of the line... Does it feel like it's a top-of-the-line vehicle? Does Not it feel, really. Did it make you feel elite in any way or form? It doesn't feel special. It's fine. I want to get that out of the way. It's nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't feel luxurious. Uh, I haven't driven an EXL. They have a lot of the same equipment. Um... I would say that what you're really looking, what you really get with the Elite that you're not necessarily getting in the EXL is like it has a, a louder stereo, uh, three zones of automatic climate control. So if you're riding in the back, you have controls on the back for whoever is riding there. Uh, mm-hmm. Automatic wipers. It has acoustically insulated glass. So I don't know how noisy a base uh, passport is, but I guess noisier. And you get like a hands-free tailgate and like seat seat heaters in the second row. So those are those are like nice to have things, but they're incremental. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing about that where you're like, this is a game changer for me. <laughs> I think it also has navigation. Uh, but I think the pass- the Trailsport might also have nav. I don't think the base model has it. Now, when you look at the Pilot Trailsport um, and how it's actually adapted some, you know, functionality into its, into its off-road um, marketing, we have to imagine that whatever the... Na- if there's going to be another Passport, that it's going to also adapt, you know, some real... Changes, yeah, right? I would say... Is that too bold of an assumption? No, I would say wait a year. If you really want yeah. this Trailsport and you want a Passport and you want a Passport Trailsport and you want to say Passport Trailsport Passport all the time, wait a year, yeah. do that. Uh, don't buy the one that's there now. Buy an EXL and upgrade it on your own. That would be my advice. Because the difference in features, the Trailsport adds like you get orange stitching inside and LED fog lights and you get navigation. And that's it. Like Ooh. You get the different wheels, <laughs> but you're going to be changing those anyway if you're buying the base model. So... And, and when I say base model, like base model is really underselling what the Passport EXL brings to the table. I think that if you were to compare it to a base model, um, gee, I don't even know, a Highlander, I guess, which feels bigger. Uh, it's yeah. it's hard to find a direct competitor to the to the Passport. I, I, but I always felt like the Outback was close. but Maybe, yeah. Uh, I think to get to like EXL base features in an Outback, you have to go well above base. So the price is even out. Okay. Um, did you, 
did you find it practical? Because I know you're going through some, like, you're, you're hauling stuff these days. It's okay. It's fine. I mean, it has the expected amount of room. I, again, I don't really have complaints about it. It's just, it didn't really speak to me. The power is fine. Acceleration is fine. Fuel economy was okay. It feels kind it's of... It's the most average. It sounds fairly average. It is very it's, average. It's a blob, right? Like a blob with wheels. It's almost like a placeholder. You know, like the pilot is the, the halo, and then they're just like, this is kind of a truncated pilot. And if you want less pilot, like if you want a vehicle that has no third row and is maybe a bit easier to park, then I could understand why you would choose a passport. But other than that... Um, it's, it's, there's nothing about it that's particularly compelling where I would say you have to drive this if you're shopping for, I guess, a midsize SUV. <laughs> I don't know. Is this a midsize or a compact, Sammy? I would call it a midsize okay. for sure. Yeah. yeah it's, what a bizarre car, right? I don't know. I mean, this is an example, and we've talked about this many times on the show. There was a white space in the showroom and they shoved the passport in to fill it. And fine, if you can sell those, I get it. But it doesn't necessarily give it much of an identity. You know, it's like, it's not... Yeah, it's neither It's neither a small pilot or a big CRV. Yeah, it's like, that's that's exactly <laughs> the case. You know, if your identity is, I'm not a pilot and I'm not a CRV, that's that's addition by subtraction and it doesn't always work when you're building a brand identity. But for midsize SUV shoppers, if the price is right and it's comfortable, um, they might not care because it's it's an appliance, so... Okay, um... Okay, well, I mean, we've talked about the passport uh, in the past, so I, I think we should we can we can move on past this conversation uh, this week. Is that okay? Yeah, you don't, you're not going to be offended, right? No, I actually, there's a couple of uh, of listener questions, and actually, not just questions, but feedback, uh, feedback that we got recently that I kind of wanted to touch on. Um, the first one comes from Brian. Uh, he was he yeah, he was actually talking about a bunch of things, but the thing I wanted to bring up on the show was I, I a couple episodes back I, I talked about hill descent control. And we're on this off-road kick here and how I don't really feel like the hill descent control makes a lot of sense because people who want to go off-roading want to have the experience of off-roading and they want to enjoy that. It would be like using cruise control on a racetrack if you were driving a sports car kind of thing. So he mentioned that in regards to hill descent control, he he and his wife did the 100-mile white rim trail in Utah with a, uh, a V8 Forerunner, a 2006 and that's intense yeah they so this trail um they decided to use the hill descent control on a certain section of it and it uses on most toyotas it uses a combination of brake modulation and the stability control system so he he said that in his in his vehicle the forerunner he had to engage low range four-wheel drive and he had to pull the automatic shifter down to first or second gear. So you're already kind of right. doing two of the things that you would do anyway if you were manually right. going down. But um, he found that the pings, creaks, and pops of the automatic braking system were annoying. And he eventually disengaged the feature and relied just on holding the brakes on his own and holding the transmission in low range himself. And yeah. that was hill descent control enough for him. I want to understand. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I want to underscore. That's what we've been saying. That's what me and you have been saying, right? The last time I used hill descent control in an aggressive way was uh, oof, when the Ford Ranger came out. I we it must have been 2018. We did a pro. I did a program where we compared it back to back with the Tacoma of that year, and the Ford hill descent control was pretty quiet. The Tacoma, which is again, I think like you know, this is 12 years past Brian's truck. It was exactly as loud as he mentioned it. Like it was super loud. Sometimes it sounded like it was grinding the brakes, and it was very distracting. I could see how 
if you're going down a long trail, you would get super irritated or tired of hearing that all the time. Um, and I know the argument for hill descent control is that on a very long trail, it keeps you from getting tired out by having to pay attention all the time. I can understand that. But if you're being irritated by pops, clings and bangs, I think that that's like the worst side of that coin. Yeah, it's just much fatigue, right? Like, yeah. and it's always very interesting to talk to somebody who's never experienced a feature and then their reaction is, I don't like the sound that it makes because it sounds like it's breaking something. Yeah. Um, if you've ever been in, in a car, I mean, in the snow, we deal with ABS sometimes. And when you first hear ABS, you're like, oh, dear, this is something awful is happening to the car. Um, when you hear this pulsating or vibrating or, or noise. And I don't think people like understand that that's the feature. It's but working. imagine you're hearing ABS for like 20 minutes straight. Yeah, exactly. So I, no I one think, you know, that. it will. Do you think then, you know, mechanically the, fun, the feature is working but there's no way to mask that kind of there noise. There is. I mean, Ford there? doesn't sound that way. So, like, that's what I was saying. The Toyota one was extremely noisy and the Ford one was not. And it was a huge contrast. I, f- I, fear, I hear a lot that have that, like, groaning, creaking noise to them. And uh, that's familiar to me. I, I, I will have to double check to see how Fords feel. But I've been in a couple of German products that they still sound like something ain't right <laughs> for sure i mean the the thing is too these noises are disconnected from your inputs as a driver yeah because you're not doing anything it's one thing to push the brake and hear a groaning noise it's another mm-hmm. thing to have your feet fat up flat on the floor and be subjected to a groaning noise at random intervals for 20 minutes it's yeah i absolutely. feel like as a driver when you hear sounds that aren't of your own making it can be disconcerting absolutely um, there was another. There was another uh, piece of feedback I got. We got from Paul. Uh, both Paul and Brian, longtime listeners of the show. Thanks for that so much. Really appreciate it. Um, Paul said, if, if you're thinking about leasing a Crosstrek, you should at least test drive the Impreza RS. It has the same all-wheel drive goodness with the better motor and a little more fun to drive than the Crosstrek. So, Paul, you're not wrong. Uh, the the bigger motor is much better, and uh, I mean, it's on paper, it's like 30 horsepower, but in the real world. I vastly prefer the Crosstrek with the larger motor. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't driven the the RS though. Sammy, you drove it. You, you yep. like the bigger motor, but the rest of the car kind of left you lacking, right? They call it the RS, but it's really just a bigger motor. Like that's all. It, uh, that's all it is. There's no sport. There's no sporty element to it unless you include the fact that it runs on 18 inch wheels. Um, as well. There's I, no additional handling functionality. There's no stiffer ride. There's no nothing really that screams this is a more uh, fun to drive vehicle. So and um, I actually have an RS, an Impreza RS from the era when it was a WRX with a different engine. And it is quite <laughs> has a different track and has the wide body and all that. So Subaru is really kind of ignored, I think, that part of its past with this new model. But, but Paul, the other reason why, I, I once you brought up the RS, I went and started pricing it. And it, it is, I think, slightly cheaper or right around mm-hmm. the same price as the cro- base Crosstrek I'm buying. But the other thing that I realized was if I was going to get the Impreza RS... I would have to get 18-inch wheels, which means I would probably have to get either 18-inch winter tires or buy a second set of wheels that are 17-inch and put 17-inch winter tires on because 18-inch winter tires can be expensive. And since the Mm -hmm. whole goal of – and the Crosstrek that I'm buying is 17-inch out of the box. So the whole goal of this this buying exercise is to get the least expensive, reasonably efficient all-wheel drive vehicle that I can for my fiancé. And – 
the RS would be better to drive with the extra power, but I think the additional costs that go with it might balance that out and kind of took it off of the um, took it off the uh, the list for us. The other thing is yes. the the Crosstrek has more ground clearance. It has like eight point seven inches. Yeah, and where we're living. Uh, it's going to be, you know, mountain roads and there might not be snow removal all the time. <laughs> yeah, you might be last on the list in terms of snow removal. So It's also interesting to point out that while the Crosstrek has more ground clearance, if you're thinking about practicality, the hatchback version of the RS has more um, cargo space because it doesn't have a spare tire. Mm. But that also sounds like a bit of a cell phone, isn't it? Like What, what I would really like is if I could buy a... Like a Crosstrek RS or something like that. like Because the, the only RS that we're getting up here now, sorry, the only two and a half liter version of the Crosstrek that we're getting is the uh, the Onyx and then the top tier trim levels. And both of those are right. considerably more expensive. But like, why not make uh, a, a sportier version of the Crosstrek that isn't the Onyx and that isn't the Wilderness? Because I don't want to go off road. You know, I, I guess I'm saying, why not build a Crosstrek just for me? Which is kind just of for Ben, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, since since the idea is to save as much cash on this as possible, since it's not, it's going to be an appliance. That's kind of why we rolled out the RS. But it is a good suggestion. I think that it's a good alternative to what we're doing. And if mm-hmm. I didn't live somewhere where snow removal was as much of an issue, or if I didn't have to worry about winter tires, it is something that I would consider. So thank you for there's that all suggestion. sorts of the, there, there's all sorts of really interesting choices in this segment or, or that price range that don't quite finish the job. Like, I, I I don't know. Remember, is there still a Golf All-Track? I'm not sure. I don't know but to, I don't think so, right? Because they got rid of all the Golfs that weren't GTIs or Golf Yeah, there's definitely not a new one. I don't know when it dropped off the radar. Um, and that was an interesting product. Like, not bad. But I'm uh, a little scared of the electronics on that as well. And the infotainment systems are yes. not so great. So those are, those are things that would scare me away from buying a VW. But the other thing, too, is, I mean... Again, looking at this from like a purely purely ruthless financial perspective, the lease deals make a big difference here. And if I could get yeah. a Crosstrek lease deal on like a Kia or a Hyundai, I would be seriously looking at those vehicles. But I can't. I might even look at something like a Bronco, uh, Bronco Sport, sorry. But these are all vehicles that are like 8, 8.9% financing versus 39 or 4.9 from Subaru. And that makes a really big difference over a two-year lease, surprisingly. So... Um, I'm in a very specific financial situation, uh, or not financial situation, a financial point in time where like used cars are expensive and they suck, and new cars have really high interest rates for the most part, and it makes it hard to get cheap basic transportation. Right. Uh, I mean, I think everybody's in that situation. It's one of the funniest things is like when you talk about new car um, monthly payments, they're out, they're astronomical, yeah. and we just have to swallow it as consumers. That doesn't sound like. I don't know. When I first came, like I say, I think I mentioned this to you. When I first started writing about cars, there were such things that were there were such things as cars that were under twenty grand. Like that was okay. Yeah, there were 10, there were small cars. There were ten thousand dollar cars too, and there were ten thousand dollar. You could get like sure. a Mirage or a Micra for that amount of money, at least in Canada. Or and a like Spark, right? Ten thousand dollars in Canada is like seventy five hundred dollars in the states. So we've come a very long way from that. And now we've got people apparently like average monthly payments for cars are like near a thousand dollars, and you're you're like, what happened? Right? I would I would honestly I really like the Micra. I know it wasn't sold in the U.S., but the Micra only comes. I mean, you can get an automatic, but the manual is really what you want. And again, manual and traffic for for this application doesn't make sense. It's it sucks that you're gonna laugh at me. It sucks that the kicks came. <laughs> took the, the 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 micra 
and became a micro cross track or what do you mean, micro cross essentially, and did not offer all wheel drive. Yeah. But the product that the Kicks replaced, which was the Juke, I believe, did. Yes. If you wanted the CVT, you could get all wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. You had to deal with the CVT. Yeah. Back when Nissan CVTs were notoriously poor, <laughs> like worse than they are now. So that's an interesting concept. But thank you guys for uh, sending us some feedback. We really appreciate that. And we love engaging with you guys. So if you do, if anybody else wants to reach out reach out to us, it's very easy to do so. You go on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You go to the contact um, page. You fill out all that information. And whatever you're saying, all that feedback lands in our inbox. Me and Ben discuss it. And more often than not, you guys make a great point that we should bring up on the podcast. And we do. Right? That's correct. If you, want out, if you want to reach out to us in maybe more convenient ways for yourself, you can email us the old-fashioned way. The email address is benjamin at benjaminhunting.com, or you can reach out to us on social media. I am on, um, I think it's x, x.com. Um, I'm at Sammy underscore hard, like you're laughing. Or you can reach out to us on Instagram. Ben is at huntingbenjamin. And if you want to subscribe to us, there's you can do that on any podcatcher. Just go to your podcatcher, type in Unnamed Automotive Podcast, and you'll find us. And if you could, you know, link, uh, leave a like, leave a review, share it with your friends. We would always appreciate that. Um, next week, Sammy, we're not going to be recording because I'm going to be moving and I don't have internet yet in, the, in my country stronghold. Uh, but the week after that, we will be back and we'll be talking about the move where I get to play car Lego or not car Lego, but I don't know, car Jenga. I got to move all the cars from one city to the other. Car Tetris. Car Tetris. And yeah. uh, I'm using a few other vehicles to do the move. So I'll, I'll have some perspectives on that. Bye. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>